Hey there. Today we're doing things a little bit differently here at The Art Angle by bringing you an excerpt from a show we love, Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. Every Sunday, Sam invites an artist, activist, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart, addressing questions big and small through dialogues driven by curiosity, compassion, and an abundance of research. Recently, he sat with guests like Margaret Atwood, Maureen Abramovich, Kate Blanchett, Questlove, David Byrne, and as you'll hear today, visual artist Toyin Oji Odutola. In this preview, Toyin reflects on a formative trip to our homeland at age 16 and the challenge of creating art through the recession and through grad school. She also shares how the subjects in her new book came to life, her full circle moment painting Zadie Smith, and what it means to her to be alive today. I hope you enjoy Sam and Toyin's conversation as much as I did. You can hear the full episode and more from Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso wherever you get your podcasts. I wonder if this sort of light inside of you that blossomed into this career, if it kind of began in 2001, because it's the year you and your mother make a trip back to Nigeria. That was a significant trip. I think I got to see a side of my mother I had never seen. I got to go to where I was born, my hometown. That was really intense because, you know, I saw my house that was burned down and all of my cousins' houses and everyone else's houses was burned down. My school and all of these things that were so intimate to me and that were like completely strange and otherworldly. And just like you go to a museum with your mom in the very university where your parents met and you see an Ife head and it's a replica and you're like, whoa. <laughs> what is this thing? And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And I didn't know about Benin Kingdom or any of that. And my mom was like, this is art. You know, this is part of your heritage. And I, I had no idea. I don't know. I came back from that trip really affected by what I saw and experienced. The trip was just, I just felt really, like, sad seeing my past and you know, like the burnt house stuff. Like, I remember that house so intimate, like like corners of the house. Like, I have a mark on my forehead when I fell down the stairs. So, like, I was, like, looking forward to seeing the stairs. You know, no, stuff like that. Like, I remember we were, like, in the living room when I heard the Thriller album for the first time. And I don't remember, like, which room, like, you know what I mean? Like, what was in the room. But I remember being in a corner somewhere because I was scared of the voice. I think it was... Vincent Price at the end, and I just, mm -hmm. like, huddled in, like, this corner because I was so scared of the voice. <laughs> That's what I mean. My memory is strange. And unreliable. Yeah. And yet here we are. <laughs> we are. <laughs> revisiting some pieces. Mm -hmm. When you do fully accept the path of being an artist, and it, it seems like you make a clear decision. Yeah. In 2008, you graduate from the University of Alabama. As someone wrote, you had an initial adherence to ballpoint pens and monochromatic palette. Ooh, yeah. Not the kind of writing I would produce. <laughs> it's, you know. But I think accurate. Yeah. This is so awesome. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, though, because, like, can I just say, though, obviously, you've had other people in the arts who've done these interviews. You notice how people talk about their creativity and then how art world people talk about mm -hmm. it. It's like dissertation. It's yes. like, why am I responding to this language? It makes no sense at all. I apologize to anyone who tries <laughs> to access this language because it's impossible. We can't even understand it, and we're in it. You Look, know? we're doing the best we can. <laughs> exactly. Okay? 
You said of that time right after college, when I started this whole thing around 2009, it was just a means of making me not go crazy. Honestly, it was so immersive that I would never pay attention to the fact that I was homeless and I had no job and I was really depressed. Yeah, that was um, a crash. That <laughs> was a recession. You know, you come out with an arts degree <laughs> in the middle of a recession. Good luck. It's already good luck in general, but it was like, you know, and I think I worked at a law office as a runner. Oh, tragic. Got fired exponentially after that. I mean, of course I did. I was like, I, I'm shit with authority. And also, like, I mean, they would be like, so you got to go to the courthouse. I said, do I? Again? I mean, I was just, I was terrible because I, I felt very disillusioned like a lot of people. I loved art, but I also knew that no one needed art right now. They needed a job. And I had gotten fired and I was too scared to tell my parents. And so I slept on the couch of a friend. It was a dark time. I was like, I weighed like 90 pounds. <laughs> it was stupid. My dad ended up finding me and he's like, we're getting you food. And he says it every time he sees me. He's like, I went home and I cried on the way after seeing you. He said something about like, I didn't work so hard to see my child like that in this country. And it was around that time I moved back home and I started working on going to grad school. I can hear the guilt in yeah. your voice. Survivor's guilt is real. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's something I'm working on every day. I mean, I know how hard they worked. I, I remember, I mean, my dad slept on the floor. My parents come from another generation of just like, wow, like, how did you make it? You know, like, I look at their lives. And so when I had what I had, I don't really, I know there's degrees and there's levels to it. I, I, I'm very aware of that. And I try to be, give myself perspective on it. Mm -hmm. So when I look at that time, it was very, very dark. But I also understand that my parents had it worse. And them seeing me that way was um, a wake-up call for me more than them. And everyone has that moment, you know, where you're like, okay, I, I really love this. Like, mm -hmm. I love this so much, and I'm going to find out a way to do it. And so grad school was the in. It was like, all right, if I can get a scholarship, which I was so fortunate to get, I can teach. I can still draw on my own time, but at least I can get health insurance, and I can get a, a salary and stuff. And so that was why I went to grad school. It was not to become what I became. You went to grad school to get out of the hole that you were in. Exactly. What did that transformation look like? Dude, grad school from, what was it, 2010 to 2012 was trash. Garbage. I just felt very um, lost in that. And so I did ballpoint pen drawings of Black people. I was one of two, two Black students of 54 grads coming in that year. It was me and another uh, sister, Sanaka. And she was from Panama. And we both did representational work in an age when no one was even touching that. So you can imagine the critiques we had. It was hard. I mean, I remember just feeling like I was working three jobs and keeping to myself. Just thinking, I don't know if I want to be this kind of artist. I don't want to be just kind of like, oh, you know, the theory Latin language that no one talks like that. I, I was also from the South, so I was like, you have to speak normal English to me because this sounds crazy. The situationalists are nice, but I also want to know about the Chicana movement. Why are we spending like three weeks on a situationalist walking through Paris, but like two days on the Chicana movement in this city? Like... You know, they didn't know how to talk about race. They didn't know how to talk about blackness. And I had to figure it out myself in my work. I had to learn the language of it, which is why my thesis was called Alphabet. I was literally learning a language of how I define blackness for me and how I wanted to continue with it, with that language. But the way I was treated by teachers, some of my fellow classmates, I was very fortunate to have friends who I'm still 
friends with now from that time. But I felt very isolated, and there was a lot of things that were said to me that, yeah, you couldn't say that shit now. Like? Why do you draw black people? Literally, that was a genuine question from a teacher. Like, why would you draw black people? And I'm like, it's the strangest thing to ask me. And I had to answer it in a critique and justify why there were black figures on the wall of my studio. How does one answer that? You don't. I mean, it's, sadly, it's continued throughout my career. People often ask me in some form or fashion, why do we care about these black figures? Why are they black figures here? And it's like, I don't think that's a question I can answer. That's a question you need to answer for yourself. And was she wondering why there weren't more central white figures? Yeah. You know, it's that typical Toni Morrison thing. How insulting is this question? You said, I had to go through that to get where I am now, which is a very freeing place where the black figures that I can make can be various. The work isn't limited to that history anymore. And I think it has to do with the time that we're in. Whereas before you had to represent blackness so much and you had to sacrifice a little bit of yourself to do that. Absolutely. It's such a strange thing to say because it's been said by so many creative black people throughout time. You know, Toni Morrison obviously famously is like, this center, the fact that you're saying that black womanhood and my voice in that center, you would never think it various. You would never think it expansive and generative, like I said. So I just knew it coming out of grad school that I was so not interested in pain. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do trauma <laughs> and reality in my work. It was fantasy. It was speculative and alternative futures, but that didn't mean it wasn't real. This is just a space where you maybe hadn't accessed in a while or didn't know you could access. And like the black figuration I'm creating is, again, it's just a respite from the reality. You you know what the reality is as a black person. I don't need to regurgitate that to you. I'm just giving you something else to think about and to feel like you could exist in this plane. And your blackness is not an assault. It is not an apology. It is not a compromise. I just thought, like, what are the people we don't know yet? Yeah, there's reality, but every time you do reality with blackness, it's just, it's limiting. People tend to, like, stamp it and walk away. I can't tell you how many shows I've been in where it's, like, black portraiture today. I'm like, I can't do this. Whereas if you just say, there's these two guys in a garden, <laughs> and uh, they decided to have a picnic. Let's follow them for the day. It, you know what I mean? Their blackness is not implicit in the title, but it's like it informs how they move through it. And it's so much more interesting. When you leave school, you say, the thing that infuriates me is that I can't be Elizabeth Payton <laughs> painting and drawing people in my life who aren't famous and who have no significance besides my connection to them. But I draw them in this way where I'm full on adorning these people. And all the public has to do is digest them as pretty. You say that in 2012. And yet, I think this monograph is the promise, the actualization of, of that desire. It's so weird looking at that book right now. I originally wanted to call it three years because it was just three years of my life. But it was also just three years of dealing with what I said then in 2012. It was like, can I create Black characters who are just beautiful? And that's it. That nothing bad happened to them. <laughs> nothing nothing um, to justify. Such a low bar. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, it's like just the simplest premise. And you would be shocked at the response from that premise. Like the brief is, these two men fall in love. 
Their families are aristocratic. It's like any fantasy novel you can imagine from some Eurocentric view of things. But, you know, it was coming from that space. They weren't subjected to slavery, colonist views. They just come from these two families. And they have wealth of their own from those families. And in that, this whole story happens. I didn't think that that bar would be such a world. It, as low as that bar was, it, was, it took three years to explore it. And I never had a chance to do that with my work before in light of like Elizabeth Payton. I mean, there's a lot of my circle, if you will, in these characters. You know, my brothers are in there. My mom and dad are in there. <laughs> they're all over it. My friends, Joanna is in there. All of them, they're all in there. The specificity and the blackness and the beauty just enhanced the story better. It wasn't like an aside or a disclaimer. It just was like, no, just this is what makes it better. I love people who take the reality and make it better. Not better in the sense of like, we should all do this. It's like, it could be this. Like, the could be is so exciting to me. The should be sucks. But could be? Ooh, that's sexy. Like, that's a nice big world to get into. This whole book is could be. Your words are could be. Zadie Smith, in writing about this, said, if only. If only. (laughs) Are the two words. She has much more gravity (laughs) into this. (laughs) In looking at these opening chapters, uh, one and two, she writes, if only slavery had never happened. If only African families had never been broken and serial traumatized. Instead, the past 600 years of dispersion and displacement have been magically replaced by consolidation of wealth, of heritage, of privilege itself. You have to understand, when you leave your country at five, that's part of that displacement. I think why I made this was because I was like, I want to belong somewhere in Nigeria. I want that for me. Sounds very selfish now, but I think that's why I made this. I would love to live in this world. And what was such a joy and a gift was seeing other people say, I want to live there too. When you finish grad school, you do an interview. (laughs) And they asked, which writers do you like? And you said, I remember the first time I read a Zadie Smith book, who I adore. I think she's the female literary equivalent of me as an artist because she's always questioning herself. And that's something I do when I work. My style is very much a reflection of people I read. If I were ever to meet any of these people, I think I would probably cry. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. And as we leave, I wanted to sit with the very portrait you made of Zadie Smith. I know you've made people cry in this program. I refuse to cry. That whole thing was like a—I thought I was, like, not, like, alive. Like, when I got the news, I remember reading White Teeth at 16 and being blown away. And just being like, wow, this feels so relatable. This feels so real. And not that, you know, other literature hadn't done that. It was just something like the collective, you know? It wasn't just one person. It was, like— a neighborhood. It reminded me of Berkeley, you know, Albany, where I grew up. It reminded me of Huntsville. Like, I've always lived in odd places where it was like a collective. It was just a lot of people from different places. Just the luck of the draw of my life. And so to read a book that felt like that, like, I was like, oh, I recognize that completely. Like, this neighbor is from China, and this person is from Turkey, and, you know, and that was the neighborhood. That's just how you, you know, and that's London. That's all these, you know, metropolitan places. But I also grew up with that. From Ife, 
all the way now. And you don't think you're going to meet a hero. But to meet her and to have her write what she wrote about my work and just that was enough. Just seeing that in Vogue was like, oh, my God, I'm happy. I'm good. And then getting that letter from one of my favorite, not my favorite, but one of the coolest institutions I know, which is the National Portrait Gallery. That just was like too much to bear. I think I lost my shit. You couldn't make this up. If I had told that to Toy in, you know, 2012, I mean, I'd just come back from the past and just slap the shit out of her. Like, you ain't ready. So let me just give you this right now, because this shit's coming. You know, we she came to my studio. We were chilling, smoked some cigarettes. It was super cool. And then I took some photos, and I told her to chill. Because she was nervous, too. That was what made it so wild. And I just asked her one question. I said, what do you want? You've been to this space. You've been to this museum. What do you want? And she said, I've never seen an Afro painted. And that whole thing. I said, well, that's true. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's paint an Afro. That was it. It was like that and just like show like Black London, you know? And that's what I did. I wanted to make her look so strong and so self-possessed in her element. The whole time I was doing it, I just felt very, uh, it was emotional. But looking at that portrait, I mean, it's like... It's a lot. It's a lot to look at that thing. Uh, Why is it so emotional? I just, I never would have thought in my wildest dreams that I would meet her, let alone <laughs> create her portrait. Like, are you kidding? I still can't believe it. She's such an amazing figure, an amazing mind, and a beautiful person. To be a part of her story in some way through this was really an honor. It was like genuinely, it's like going back to that time when you, you really thought you weren't shit. And then do this, you know? Like, you just kind of like, okay, okay. I just keep going. I just keep making pictures and telling stories and being really grateful for being here, not for people acquiring me <laughs> and my work, but grateful that I get to spend time making things and exploring ideas and learning from that. Because that's what I do. I just kind of learn. I get to be a student for the rest of my life, and I have to learn a new language. Picture making is a language, and so I learn through making stuff, which is scary. My style, for instance, has changed since I started, and I know now that whatever comes next is going to be a whole new toying that I have to contend with. I don't know, for some reason, I've kind of kept her down or I've kept her, you know, she's not important. Now it's like, no, who are who is she? <laughs> who is this person, you know? I think that's what I'm wondering. Well, so much of my life has been you are your function. That is why you're important. You are your function. That's what I meant by what's useful. And now I'm starting to ask the question of like, no, really, who are you? <laughs> like, that might be a lifelong thing. I'm okay with that. But it took a while to get here. Well, then, as a time capsule, let me put it back to you. Who are you today? What matters to you in this moment? The only thing that comes to mind right now is the beauty of quiet and slowness. I think the world is very fast, too fast, too overwhelming. And to be alive is to force a slowness and don't fill it with stuff. I keep thinking of that Japanese philosophy of ma has been like my whole life <laughs> lately. Ma is this idea that the space between objects, the space between people, the space between forms is pregnant with meaning. That empty space, quote unquote, empty in a Western sense, but in a Japanese philosophy is full. It's a presence. 
And so I think about the quiet as a presence that I want to lean into. It's pregnant with meaning. I may not understand that meaning, but it's important and I need to sit with it. Even when I want to feel it, even when I'm uncomfortable with the silence, even when I feel like I'm not being productive or I'm not doing something that I need to do right now, I need to sit down <laughs> and let it happen and wash over me because it means that I, I'm beyond my function in a society and I'm just a person here right now. Toyin, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Sam. That was a preview of Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, a podcast from our friends at Pushkin Industries. You can hear more of Talk Easy wherever you get your podcasts.